What's up, y'all? Pete Kennedy here of Subway Sports Talk. Just want to jump in quickly to mention that we recorded this podcast prior to the Knicks loss against the Denver Nuggets on Wednesday night. So when you hear us talk about the Knicks in a moment, which you will, we didn't have that Denver Nuggets game just yet. But this is what I want to say now before we get started with an awesome episode with the co-host of Hardwood Knox NBA podcast, Dan Valley and Adam Fromel. We're going to get there in a second. But just to touch on this Denver Nuggets loss quickly, I want to mention that these two things are both true. The Knicks were due for a clunker. I think we could all admit, right? They were due for a bad game, and they had one. The refs maybe weren't in their favor. They didn't shoot well. Nothing really went right. They got off to a terrible start and couldn't crawl back. Also true. The Denver Nuggets are better than the New York Knicks. Those both those things are both true. We can't really argue it. We can't really debate it, and it's okay. But this is the part that's most important. Not allowing this one clunker against a team that's better than you to compound into multiple bad games. Now, the next stretch for the Knicks is very tough. They have the Phoenix Suns, the LA Clippers, and the LA Lakers. After that, the final three games include the Hornets, the Spurs, and the Celtics. So no easy game from now through the end of the season, but more importantly, those next three are very difficult. So yes, they had a clunker. It's not great, but hey, we can chalk it up to them being due and running into a team that's better than them. But now it gets important to not let that build on itself and get worse. You need to compete against the Suns. You need to compete against the Clippers. And we're not sure which Lakers we get yet, a.k.a. is LeBron playing or not, but you need to compete. And realistically, you need to win at least one of those and at least two out of the three with the Hornets, Spurs, Celtics. Obviously, the more wins, the merrier. So no panic button, no this team isn't real take coming your way from me. So I wanted to get that out there quickly to just let you know. It's okay. The Nuggets are better. Yes. The Knicks were due for a bad one. Yes. But as long as this doesn't continue, they're still on the track that we discussed they're on in this podcast in just a moment. So again, joining us right now of Bleacher Report, Dan Favalli, and formerly of Bleacher Report, now of Sportscasting, Adam Frommel, and both the co-hosts of Hardwood Knox, an NBA podcast. It's a wonderful, wonderful episode talking about basketball, the Knicks, the Nets, so much more right here, SST. Let's ride. Subway Sports Talk. Dan, 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 clear of the closing doors, please. All right, here we go, Subway Sports Talk. My name is Peter Kennedy, and I am your host. Thank you so much. As always, for tuning in to SST on Apple Podcasts, app, Spotify, wherever you listen to podcasts, we appreciate you the same. Today's an awesome episode, not only because the playoffs are swiftly approaching in the bas- in the world of basketball, in the NBA, but we have two awesome guests on right now, co-host of the Hardwood Knox podcast. One of these guys has actually been on the pod when it was a different version, when it was still Sports Blog New York. This is his second time. We'll count it as his second time, and for that reason, we'll go to him first and foremost. 
NBA writer for Bleacher Report, co-host, as I mentioned, of Hardwood Knox. That's Dan Favalli. What's up, man? What's up, Pete? Thanks for having me back. Uh, absolutely. It's, it, I feel like maybe uh, we can argue it's long overdue. I think I was checking the old DM history. It was like 2019. And if you want to know how long ago it really was, we used Skype. Uh, it was a decade ago, is what you're saying. <laughs> 2019 feels like it might have been a decade ago. For real. It, do, it does feel like a different lifestyle, uh, lifetime. Um, but, hey, here we are using Zoom, I guess, in the twenty, truly in the 21st century here in 2021. And also joining us, your co-host on Hardwood Knox, just left Bleacher Report, if I'm not mistaken, uh, now at a place called Sports Casting, and that's name, that guy is Adam Fronel. What's up, man? Not much. Pleasure to be here, and uh, you definitely introduced the right one of us first. <laughs> I don't know about that, because you know what? When you guys do your podcast, there's kind of like you guys both intro it in a way, because Dan has a little bit of a read, perhaps, in the beginning, but then Adam kicks off the content. It kind of feels like you both kick off the show every single week, and I'm here for that. It works out well. Yeah, I think to some extent, Dan Dan typically takes the reins more, and I'm always thankful for that. Yeah, I mean, uh, at least one of our seven to nine listeners appreciates the way that we do it. So thank you for saying that, Pete. <laughs> yeah, of course. Well, count me in as one of those guys. And obviously, we're going to be talking about hoops, and we're going to be talking about a bunch of the things that perhaps you guys talk about on your podcast as well. Uh, if you don't know one thing about these two, because there's a, a commonality that you guys both uh, have, and it's this website, Twitter handle called NBA Math. It's something that I kind of do want to bring up here because I find it fascinating. If anyone follows me and is listening to this podcast right now, I have retweeted, quote, tweeted these things plenty of times, probably most often in the Mitchell Robinson's actually really good era where he was just skyrocketing on these things, and I loved it. It's not so much. We, can, we can't say that right now. But it's wonderful. Um, so quickly, I have my first question here for you guys. It's kind of overarching. It's kind of simple. But I think it's an important place to start in kind of how you think about basketball. Because I love, you guys come prepared with statistics to back up your takes. But it's obvious that you guys watch basketball. To a lot of people on Twitter, that's something that matters, right? <clears throat> when, excuse me. When you hear somebody talking about hoops, do they watch hoops or do they just like look at stats? First and foremost, where do you guys find that balance? And I guess I'm kind of just curious, do people sometimes try to come at you in that regard because you guys are NBA math and they hear math and they get overwhelmed and scared? Dan, I'll go to you first. Uh, it's, I mean, you definitely shouldn't go to me first about analytics. The one thing, and I think I said this the first time that I came on here, is I get so many questions and DMs and questions on podcasts about NBA math and the purpose of it <laughs> and just the the genius behind it. And I'm the least involved of the three people that are doing anything with it. So it's just funny that I don't, and I don't know what about my Twitter account makes people think that I would be the one to go to those questions too. when I'm <laughs> tweeting nonsense and Adam has all these graphics on his feed, but Adam and I have talked about it. It's, you know, I think it's fairly easy to find a balance. Even if you really are invested in the numbers, they can inform what you're watching can inform what you're looking for with the numbers. What you see in the numbers can then inform what you're watching. You can go back and, and look at things, look at players, and there's, you know, there's not a take on the podcast, however bad it might be to people, that I'm not going to have tried to confirm with something I've seen and looked at with data or someone else has written about that I've gone into. You want to check two of those three boxes, I think, or two of however many boxes you can find. And being NBA math, for me specifically, I've definitely found that you are stereotyped and do you only care about numbers? And the podcast is a good example because I've had people 
I've had guests and I've had people in the DM say, you're affiliated with NBA math. That's where the promotions come from. But the podcast is so fun and it's not dry at all. And so by, by people saying that, I mean, it's been my family members and people that I've compensated <laughs> so that I can tell this anecdote. But that's actually something people have said. And so I think that's, you know, have we isolated some of our listenership by doing that? Maybe, but I really don't care because I don't like the idea that we still have to stereotype these analytics versus eye watching versus having a, a personality. They can be melded together. And that's one of the things when I first met Adam, I think it was like 2013, however long ago it was now. And I say met in quotes because it was in Gchat when we first met is appreciating someone who has personality, can actually write, but can be so data driven. And um, that was as a coworker, that was something that drew me to him because I think he's always struck a a very nice balance between all those elements of coverage. What a wonderful answer. Well-rounded answer. You hit on all the notes and you, you hyped up our guy, Adam. So Adam, I'll give you the floor to kind of add to that or take away from it. If you'd like it to as well, you know, the floor is yours. So NBA math is a little bit more your baby. It sounds like, and it shows because you have the data and you know, it's in there. And when you listen to you on the podcast, you're ready to rock with statistics. But again, you can tell that the both of you watch and love basketball. So it's a beautiful mesh point for me. So talk about NBA math for a second. No, I appreciate you saying that. And I also appreciate you not making me tell you how much I paid Dan to say that in his answer. <laughs> so that was uh, that was very kind of you. Um, I, I think the, the biggest misconception that people have whenever there's the analytics conversation or whenever people are talking about NBA math or another statistics-based website or Twitter account is that the people who like the numbers and who like living in the spreadsheets and looking at all the box score data and whatnot don't enjoy watching the game. And it's totally to the contrary. I've yet to meet a single person who likes breaking down basketball into these granular numbers, but doesn't enjoy watching basketball games. Typically it's a way of, you know, furthering your love for the game and, and figuring out a new way to look at it and to figure out what your eyes are missing or what they're lying about, because it's, it's so hard to watch a game and focus on all 10 players who are on the court at one time. Like you, you physically cannot do that. So, you know, you use the word balance right off the top. And I think that's the important one because analytics don't exist without the eye test and the eye test shouldn't exist without analytics as well. Like you, you have to find some sort of balance between the two at all times. You, I think it's important to always inform yourself in multiple ways and if those two ideas are conflicting, if your eyes are telling you something that the numbers are, are telling you is false, figure out what about the context of the situation it is that's leading to that conclusion. It's really well said. It really is because it, it does happen both ways. Maybe for me, you know, I'm using myself as an example here. If I'm watching more Knicks games than other games, which I do watch a bunch of games, but obviously I watch the Knicks the most, then I, I might be more aware of how I feel on an eye test basis. But if I'm watching the Grizzlies for the first time in two months, right? And I check out some statistics that helps me look for certain things like, Oh, Grayson Allen's been shooting well this year. Then I watch the Grizzlies. And I'm like, Oh no, he's really shooting well. Like maybe he's not just a catch and shoot. He's catching off movement, whatever it may be. And those things really do uh, lend, lend to each other really well. So great answers by you. I won't stick on that too, too long here because we have some actual teams to talk about. And we're at a point in the year where it's sneaky close to the playoffs. I really can't believe that we're this close to it. What is there, eight games left uh, approximately for each team now? Is that right? Yeah, about that. Oh. Between like eight and nine, yeah. Which just kind of hurts my feelings, but it's bringing the excitement as well that the playoffs are here. And I think those Nets-Bucks games that we saw over the past like three or four days gave us a sense of that intensity starting to ramp up. 
it felt like there were some, a lot of games at least every single night that didn't really have that intensity that we normally feel this close to the playoffs. So it's starting to get there. It's starting to feel real. With all that being said, I think we have to start with our New York Knicks. And when I say our, I mean perhaps me and Dan and Mike, who, shout out to Mike Bonfield, also here for today's episode. Adam, you are not a Knicks fan by trade. Do you have a home team? I will have to ask that because I don't know. The yeah, Knicks I do. I uh... Yeah, I grew up in Atlanta, so right. I'm a I, Hawks fan, I a long-suffering that. Hawks fan, and uh, Dan and I are already gearing up for how we're going to handle co-hosting a podcast when we can't stand each other during the first round. That's going to be exciting. So that that's a series that people are pinpointing, right? And so far this season, the Knicks have had the better of that head-to-head, but the Hawks are a different team today than they were two months ago, three months ago, whatever it was, I guess at the firing point uh, of Lloyd Pierce. So... Let's start with the Knicks, though. Then we're going to move to the Nets and then talk a little bit big picture stuff on contenders uh, in the playoffs. So, with the New York Knicks, and I have—I guess I'll just put myself out here first, and I'll, I'll put myself on blast. So, if you feel like you have to after this, it feels a little bit better. On a preview podcast for the Knicks this year, I went through a list of Eastern Conference teams and Western Conference teams who I thought would be better than the Knicks. All right, and this is embarrassing to say this late in the season as I've now officially accepted that they're a playoff team, right? I think there were only four teams I had ranked below the Knicks. And right now, they're the four seed in the East. Dan, this being, you know, your team by by hometown, if you will, I'll go to you first. What was the point where you went, okay, they're not just on a good run, they're not just hot, but they're actually very competent and going to be a top six seed in the playoffs. I mean, granted, they can still probably fall out if things go horribly wrong, but it's looking strong right now, and we feel really good. So what what was the point, if it has happened yet, where you really turned the table and said, oh, man, this team's actually, actually good? Yeah, so I have receipts for Adam and I, too, to throw both of us under the bus. <laughs> Their win total was set at a 26-win equivalent in an 82-game season. We both took the under without even blinking, Adam had had him at 19 wins, and I didn't go through exact win totals, but I was somewhere similar. He had them as the second worst team in the East. I had them as the absolute worst team in the East. And so we were, I don't think we were necessarily in the mega minority, but we we were wrong about the Knicks. And I think, I don't want to say I still thought they were a surprise through the All-Star break. I thought coming out when they had, I think it was the league's toughest schedule or one of the three toughest schedules remaining, and even now, they still have one of the three toughest schedules remaining. You see them get these wins where it's like against the Grizzlies, and it's still like, oh, that's not even like the, the peak of how tough their schedule is going to get. Uh, the fact that they're still winning these games, they have the league's best net rating since April 1st. That is wild because they haven't played a cupcake schedule during that time. And so that, I think, is the point coming out of that all-star break a few games in where I said, this team isn't just a Cinderella story or you know even necessarily an accident they might have something more sustainable here. And there are things that they need to do beyond this season to go towards that. But when you're looking at the playoffs specifically, staying out of the play-in, and they've already clinched a play-in spot at minimum, that was just sort of the point. And there are things that you can still harp on, but they've even had one of the league's top 10 offenses during the stretch since April 1st. And again, the fact that they've done this and that Julius Randle's still hitting those tough jumpers, that you've seen the defensive improvement from, from R.J. Barrett, that those bench units have been killing people, that they've been willing to explore R.J. plus bench units, and those lineups have been working. The level of competition that's coming, uh, those that experimentation is coming against, it's real. And so this entire stretch has sort of been the, 
the revelation for me where it's not like, oh, they're they're this quaint, cute, they'll be a postseason team, but get bounced. If you go into the Hawks Knicks series, as we might get, I'm I'm not gonna begrudge anyone except Adam if they pick the Hawks. And <laughs> but you I think you can pick the Knicks, where I don't know that you would have picked them in any sort of first round series scenario. Yeah, like thinking the fact that Vegas might have them as a favorite going into a playoff series is mind boggling. Like maybe if they were the seven seed and Joel Embiid and Ben Simmons and Danny Green and Tobias Harris were all hurt, maybe they'd be a favorite in that series. But they're actually going into the playoffs where Vegas, head-to-head, without like any sort of crazy injury, might just say that they're the better team, which is wild to comprehend for me at this point in time. Adam, as somebody who's not as uh, you know locked in on them overall every, as much as maybe some fans are, where was the first point, like what was the first thing that you remember about this team where you said, oh, snap, like this is a little different. Is that is it recent? Is it the same point where Dan uh, kind of realized it as well? Yeah, I think it was pretty similar. It was uh, it was probably that nine-game win streak that ran through much of April because prior to that win streak, they were 25 and 27. It seemed like they were very much a playoff threat in the East but might be one of the play-in teams. And we still had legitimate questions about the sustainability, especially on the defensive end. I, I think one of the... The big early season topics was New York is allowing a lot of three-pointers and opponents aren't making them. Like eventually that's going to normalize and what happens to the defense when it does. And, you know, we, we've seen that the defense has continued to evolve and that that hasn't had the impact that we thought it might early in the season. So I'll, I'll point you to one of the stats that we use at NBA math, which is the rolling team ratings. Um, and we have those going all the way back to the eighties. They, adjust for the quality of the opponent, whether it's a back-to-back, whether it's a homer and away game. And recently, the Knicks took over the absolute top spot in the entire NBA. It's the first time they've done that since the 2012-13 season. He went they, what? They had a, yeah, they had a, a one-game blip where they had the top, the top score in the NBA in 2012-13, and they've been so hot lately that as of two days before we're, we're recording this, so Monday night, they had taken over the absolute top spot in the NBA as the hottest team over the last 20 games. And at that point, like you can't deny it any longer. That is insane. I actually did see that on Twitter and I was like, Oh my gosh, like it's really, it's a real thing. Now you can, you can chalk up to a lot to short, small sample size to the luck, which was I, something I totally believed in as well. The open three pointers was, it was prevalent. Even just watching like, all right, teams are just not hitting shots. We're hitting some shots and we're winning close games, scoring 102 points. Like how is this going to sustain? And then you watch Julius Randle just continuously dominate over this, uh, the course of the season. And then the Knicks offense, which is the sticking point here for me of why they're actually looked at as a team that can be a first round favorite, depending on where they land. Obviously Um, they went from scoring 103, 104 points a game to 112, which doesn't sound like a lot, especially when you look around the league, you know, a lot of teams are scoring a buck 18 every single night. The Knicks are not that, but they're also giving up the the fewest as well. One thing I do want to point to, because this guy's gotten a lot of talk now in All-NBA, he finally got the the classic question of, hey, do you think you should be in the MVP race? And of course he's going to say yes. Like, if he doesn't say yes, it sounds soft. If he says yes, it's like, all right, you're tripping because you're not the MVP, but whatever. So he finally got that question. His name's Julius Randle, if you haven't figured that out yet. He He is the catalyst. It's not particularly close. In fact... In win-loss splits for him this year, he is averaging 26, 11, and 6 in wins, 21 and a half, 9 and a half, 5 and a half in losses. And that's, it's, it's pretty evident, right? When they get a Julius Randle 
five for 16 game, you know, 16 points, it is that much harder for them to win. So when you think about a his success, what is the number one cause to it? And then after that, who are the guys who just have to step up in order for this team's offense to stay afloat? I think for Julius Randle, two, the two things that have stood out is he's hitting just absurdly difficult jumpers, step back threes, getting those the baseline, oh my god, jumpers, and yeah, and also his passing. It's he's always been someone who could rack up the assist totals, but he's throwing these brain bending passes where he's in midair, and I think most most of the time you don't want players leaving their feet to throw passes. But Zach Lowe, I think it was put it this way, where he's throwing like these eleventh hour dimes when he's up in the air and coming down and it's just working because defenses are so committed. And so those two things have stood out more than anything. I think he's gotten better defensively overall, like a lot of the players on the team. There is an element though, and you sort of mentioned it in the, the win loss splits of almost like last year with the Hawks, where they were begging for someone other than Trey young to be able to, to lead the offense. And the Knicks don't have that yet. There's Derek Rose is just, you know, he still creates havoc when he's getting into the lane and he creates a ton of corner threes for, guys are on the floor but he's not hitting those step back jumpers like he's not that player rj really isn't there yet you want him to hit spot up threes done he's pretty physical when he can get to the basket when he has that mindset done but his pull-up game is still i don't even know that i would call it budding it's still sort of tbd for me and that's what they need you know if if julius Randle's gonna have an off night you're probably looking at those two guys who need to step up more because they need that second player to generate the consistent from scratch offense and i think rj barrett's probably the the best shot they have at that prototype of player but derrick rose is obviously far more proven at doing it he just doesn't do enough of the the shot making that level of shot making that we've seen from julius randall yeah i would just i would echo everything that dan has to say there and i think my answer for who needs to step up come playoff time is just kind of insert guard here I don't know that it necessarily needs to be Derrick Rose every night, but they need that secondary, that tertiary creator, whether it's Rose, whether it's Emmanuel Quickly, if Alfred Payton can look like a competent offensive presence, if Frank Nielakina can get on the court, whoever it may be, they, they need a guy who's able to get shots off the bounce if they're going to ascend to that even higher level. I'm, I'm trying to look up uh, his last name before I completely butcher it. Uh, they did also just sign the European guard, Luca Vildoza, officially signed today. You know, you watch his highlights, and obviously he's been a successful player overseas. You don't want to get too excited, but he's got some juice. You know, he's got some feist to it. He's got a jump shot that he looks to be confident in. We'll see if it translates. And they did sign him to, if I'm not mistaken, correct me if I'm wrong here, a multiple-year deal? A four-year deal. Anyone have any background on this guy? I'm not that familiar until recently. His name started popping up. I will say the final three are non-guaranteed. So okay. It's sort of like a, if they like him, they'll keep him. But it, it feels very much like a partial season test run. And I know next to nothing about him. Yeah, I, fig- I figured as much. We're all pretty busy watching the actual NBA. There's tons of guys, if you're watching various teams right now, who it's hard to keep up with who, like, the Raptors are running out there on a Wednesday night, let alone who's coming in from overseas. Um, so the one guy here that at moments in time throughout this season – Knicks fans thought could be one of these swing men. Insert guard here. It was Emmanuel Quickly. He had rookie of the year chitter chatter at some point where maybe he was third in line or something like that. He's had really a mixed bag this year. And I think overall our memory will lend itself to positivity where he was hitting floaters and big time threes and he's you know often unconscious with his shooting. 
He's let it, ready to let it fly, which I think we all love about him. What are the odds we see even like a game or two in the playoffs where it's like, oh, snap, IQ just dropped 24, and he just won the Knicks a game? Like, Do you think he has that in his bag yet, or is it still too early for all that? I, I think if you... Go ahead. If, if you set the over, if you set the over under on like 1.5 games in the playoffs where he scores at least like 18 points, I think I'd probably take the over mm. just because it does feel like he's one of those heater guys where when he gets rolling, he's going to keep getting shot opportunities and he has shot making skills. I mean, you said it, we saw it with the Florida game. He's still shooting uh, you know, over his last 13 games. He's shooting 49.1% on threes while taking 4.2 a game. Like the, the skills are still there and it, it feels like we could very much see like that kind of Tyler Hero-ish run where just all of a sudden he explodes because the Knicks need to turn somewhere for that offensive firepower. I would probably take the under because I would question how much is Tibbs going to rely on him. He's been such a, not only is he young, but he's been such a big part of the bench units where I assume in the playoffs, Tibbs is just going to play everyone 45 minutes a game. That That's just going to be, the standard and so i question whether he has the opportunity and i also kind of think for the player that we're sort of talking about i still think alec burks is probably a little bit better set up to do the things that they really need and we've even even i mean he's had a good year he's hitting uh 45.3 of his pull-up threes and he's shooting five of ten perfect nine of nine at the foul line in the final two minutes of one possession games and so he's he puts not a ton of pressure on the rim um he's had to change his play style ever since that injury he suffered way back when but he's someone who can create off the dribble more. And I could see Tibbs leaning on him more often, far more often in the postseason than in IQ. I mean, you could even see it in before Alec Burke's most recent stint where he was out. There were nights where he was the best closing option for this team. Obviously, Randall has been the best closing option overall for them. But there are certain times where Burks is in their closing games. Tibbs does trust him to make a play with the ball in his hands. And he doesn't do a terrible job. I feel like he kind of gets... Uh, Basically, expectations maybe get too high on him where Knicks fans can be like, oh, Alec Burks, like that can't be the guy we're turning to. Well, hey, guess what? Like he actually is the best option sometimes for this team. You know, he's a better off the dribble guy than R.J. Barrett. And sometimes he's going to be able to find a better matchup than Julius Randle, even though, like you mentioned before, that baseline fadeaway from the corner is just dumb. He's hitting it from three now, Julius Randle, too. Like it's silly. It's one of those shots now where Jokic does the one step fadeaway Pretty much anything Steph Curry or Kyrie Irving do, Luka Doncic does. Julius Randle's baseline fadeaway is getting close to some of those moves. Now, I'm not going to say he's there yet. It's a little crazy, but uh, it's interesting on the Knicks, man, because I don't want to get my hopes too high. I've spent this whole year pretty much making sure I don't get my hopes too high. And now that we're getting close, it's like, okay, now we kind of have to expect some serious competition in the playoffs. So... What would be your over on use the over under on quickly's good games or 18 point games? What would be your over under point for making a good playoff run versus a subpar playoff run for this Knicks team? And you can caveat that depending on matchup, if you will. Uh, Adam, I'll go to you first or Dan, whoever, it doesn't matter. I'll turn to Dan here just because I think our definitions of good for the Knicks and the playoffs are going to be drastically different, <laughs> especially if they play the Hawks. Fair. I think if you avoid the play-in, that's like the that's the huge accomplishment. I don't know that you can fail on a level from there, just because mm. no one had no one had them as top six in the East this year. When you get into the actual series, if you end up matching up with the Bucks, the Sixers, or the Nets, you can get steamrolled 
and it's fine. But if you are playing the Hawks or even the Heat, just based off what they've been doing this year, their offense has been all over the place, and you can't make that a six-game series, again, I don't think it's a disappointment, but it is sort of a flashpoint of, oh, damn, this is how far away the Knicks are from actually making noise against the really good teams in the Eastern Conference. And that's the... I don't want to say it's a conversation nobody wants to have. That's the conversation that needs to be had after this because so many of the players that have been key to this run, they are on those placeholder deals. Alec Burks is one of them. Noel before his injury. Uh, you know, Julius Randle is gonna his contract expiring. It's not guaranteed next year, so he's going to be a free agent no later than 2022. Uh, yeah, I'm not going to throw Alfred Payton in there because he better not be back with the Knicks next year. But <laughs> so you have to figure out like, is this worth continuing to invest in, or do you potentially this would be a front office question. Do you think about taking a step back if these guys, like a Reggie Bullock, who I think has just been one of the most underrated players mm-hmm. in the league this year, when you look at the, the defensive burden and the three-point volume burden he's carrying, you get to a point where are we willing to take a step back so we don't get locked into a core that's not good enough and you need a barometer for where you are relative to, I'll say the middle of the East, because I don't I don't think you could put them even close into the same class as Milwaukee, Philly, or, um, or a healthy Brooklyn at this point. And so if you're going up against Hawks or Miami and that series doesn't go six games, I'd be disappointed in the sense that you look at this and say, hey, maybe there's not something more than this one year thrilling, enthralling Cinderella run with this exact core. And it's a conversation that Knicks fans don't want to have yet, but I've heard you guys have it on your pod about re-signing Julius Randle. Like, do you consider doing it early? Do you wait and see? Like, do you kind of like try and think about selling high on him? Like, that sounds absolutely insane to say out loud with all the positivity he's just brought to this franchise. But unfortunately, it's going to be a real conversation before we all want it to be. Uh, So it is interesting there. On the Reggie Bullock front real quick, there was a point about halfway through the year where I feel like he went from taking open threes to taking those like semi-open threes that the best three-point shooters in the league take where there's somebody closing out on you, but you know you can get it off without it being blocked and it doesn't matter. The rest doesn't matter, right? Where your shot doesn't particularly get affected and you're just ripping it. And he he reached that point halfway through this season where he started taking the more semi-contested threes, and I feel like that unlocked everything he was doing. So, Adam, what what is your take on success? You could even equate it to the Hawks, if you will, because I think that's interesting. They're kind of in a similar spot now. The Hawks are probably one year ahead in the sense of the offseason they just had. Yeah, I agree. I think the Hawks have more urgency just because they already made those big investments in free agency. And this is the team that needs to continue improving. And I think all the the questions that Dan brought up are important ones. But at the same time, like maybe it's just because I don't have any Knicks allegiances tying me here. But I don't, I don't want to lose sight of the forest for the trees here, where if you look at the Knicks recent history, they've made it past the first round once since the 1999-2000 season. So this this season, as exciting as it's been and as much hope as it's engendered, I don't think that it's anything but a success, even if they're swept out of the first round, regardless of the opponent. Like, yeah, it would be really disappointing in the moment. It might not bode as well for the future. But this season has already proven that the New York organization is starting to approach things the right way. Now, we've criticized them throughout recent history for trying to skip steps in the process and, you know, constantly shifting between coaches and different styles and setting their own players back and trying to bring in guys who are going to help them make the leap from the bottom of the pack all the way into the top of the Eastern conference. And this off season approach and the gradual build that has gotten to this point was finally done the right way. And it's really paying off. And I think even if 
there are questions about what exactly the roster is going to look like next season and beyond. Just getting to this point with Tom Thibodeau establishing a definitive winning culture for Knicks basketball, that's already a success to me. 100%. And I guess it's going to be harder for Knicks fans to think that way, but me being objective right here, that's the right that's the right answer. I think we all would have to accept that, and you being the outside source here where your biases, other than them facing head-to-head to the Hawks, they don't really exist other than maybe wanting to poke fun at Dan every once in a while and you get your chances to, right? So I think you have the right mindset there, and that's what Knicks fans should believe in. I don't know if they'll get there, but we shall see. I think that's enough on the Knicks. Probably went a little bit longer than planned, but once we got into it, I got a little excited and we had to talk some some New York Knicks basketball, but perhaps the best team in basketball could be the team in Brooklyn, right? The Brooklyn Nets have been fantastic. They did just lose twice to Milwaukee, which everybody is trying to highlight, right? Kevin Durant played really, really well. James Harden is still out. I don't want to spend too much time here because we've talked about the Nets pretty much all year since the Harden trade, right? It's been a long season where we haven't seen those big three guys together. So, Dan, when somebody asks you, what's your take on the Nets? You know, do you have a hot take on the Nets? Do you think they can win the championship? How do you even rationalize an answer without us having seen the big three play together in so long and so little? Yeah, I think my stance on the Nets ends up being a hot take because everyone expects them to be these no-brainer Eastern Conference favorites. I still need to see it. They've played seven games with the big three. I know the minutes have gone well on the court. I need to see what the defense looks like in the playoffs. The fact that they can switch so much probably helps them in the postseason. But you're going to have James Harden coming back as the postseason starts, if not just sometime in the middle of it, it looks like. And never mind not really having the familiarity with playing alongside both Kyrie Irving and Kevin Durant. How long is the ramp up going to take to come back from this hamstring injury? I'm not a doctor. Those things are fickle as hell, though. We saw what happened with CP3 in Houston. Harden knows too well what hamstrings can do um, in the postseason to derail you. And I do think we've seen that the Nets need James Harden because he's the guy who committed to running the offense as part of that big three. And I think I saw that they're only playing, and because they played two games against the Bucs, this is skewed, but they're only playing 500 basketball when KD and Kyrie play without James Harden this season so far. That's a legitimate concern then. I think James Harden is more important to this team than maybe even anyone initially thought. The trade's been justified 10 times over with the injuries itself. They needed that talent at the top, clearly, uh, to deal with all of those absences. So I don't think, though, if the playoffs started today, that they would be my favorite. I think Milwaukee can do a lot of things defensively against them when you look at having Giannis, Chris Middleton, Drew Holiday. I like Philly maybe even a little bit better in that matchup between having Ben Simmons, who... I don't want, I don't say this haphazardly, but he can come close to maybe erasing one of those three stars from the game plan. That's just the type of player he is. Um, every playoff series so far, it's been put Ben Simmons on this guy and he'll delete him from the planet. Mm. You have Ben Simmons, Batiste Thibel, Danny Green, and then with Joel Embiid on the back line, that's absolutely huge. I don't, I don't mean for this to be a hot take, but I just don't know how you could. I understand the Nets are scary. They're fighting for a one seed in the East when they've been so disjointed with their, the availability of their stars. When it gets to the postseason, though, I do think the continuity is going to matter a little bit. And the fact that we, you know, I don't know where James Harden's at. Kevin Durant's dealt with a whole bunch of stuff. We, we still have questions about their defense. I would feel a little bit better, you know, just a tiny bit better about Milwaukee, uh, about Philly or even Milwaukee over the course of a seven-game series against them. Adam, I don't know if you want to piggyback or you want to go with your Nets thoughts as well. I mean, my only thing I was going to add there is uh, – with the past two games against the Bucks that you mentioned too, 
they played tight without Harden. So I think that's the silver lining, right? That's the one thing Nets fans can be like, well, we just played the Bucks really, really tight, one tighter than the other uh, without Harden. So you think adding him would put you in an even better position. Uh, but yeah, quarters one, two, and three, Harden can make their lives so much easier. And then we know Durant and Kyrie are two of the best closers we got. So Adam, what are your general thoughts here on the Nets? Is it incomplete kind of as well? Or do you have something brewing up that you feel passionate about? No, it's incomplete as well. This is one of those rare times where I'm totally in lockstep with Dan. Um, I, I think that, that Brooklyn is very much the highest upside team, but the floor is pretty low there. Just beyond the the health concerns, which are, are very much valid, and the continuity and chemistry concerns, the defense just has to be mentioned. I mean, the, the, over the last 10 games, they're allowing 115.1 points per 100 possessions, which is fourth worst in the NBA and granted they're trying to navigate through this injury riddled stretch and, and figure things out. And they do have the offensive firepower to keep winning games, even when they're pretty porous on the defensive end, but in a playoff series, like where adjustments are being made to take out your best offensive options. If those offensive options aren't firing on all cylinders, you don't have the defense ability to fall back on and win a game when the shots just aren't falling and I think that naturally creates a tougher path for them even if the talent on that roster is still so immense that sure like if everything's clicking they could easily run roughshod through the entire east and you know potentially make it to the NBA finals without losing a game I don't think that's going to happen but it could Um, so without a larger sample to lean on here I I think the answer has to be both that it's incomplete, but that we also recognize just how high the upside is. Perfectly fair. That's a beautiful take. I think uh, it's important when we don't know the whole story to look at everything we do have. And what we have is really high ceiling when they're clicking. Even in those seven games, we saw moments where it was like, holy hell. who's yeah? Joel Embiid it may run through DeAndre Jordan's soul like 10 times in a row. Doesn't matter. that They're going to score every time they go down the court too. Even if... Simmons and Tybal are clicking on defense. Like it still could be really hard to slow those guys down. So interesting point there real quick before we move on, Steve Nash, obviously new head coach. What do you guys feel about his, his uh, style? What are the, what are the vibes vibe check on Steve Nash right now? Feeling good about the, the coaching hire for the nets. I feel like it's kind of hard not to at this point. I think I have to feel good just because nothing has gone wrong. Like talk about a tough first season for any first year head coach where you're coming in, you're immediately tasked with leading this trifecta of superstars. It isn't the easiest path because of all the injuries, because you're trying to manage the the personalities as well. Uh, and the fact that there's been very little negativity coming out of that locker room, I think that's a success in and of itself. Yeah, I, I would just agree with Adam. It just all the things that he's had to deal with, the inconsistent availability from his stars and then rotation players. There's been some roster turnover there too. Losing Spencer Dinwiddie for the season, certainly. People uh, forget. Hurts. Yeah, and then uh, dealing with the, uh, you know, having a, I think he's handled the Kyrie Irving stuff really well where they've asked him questions and he's just moved on from it. I mean, that's the way to go as a team. is not, you know, it's not his place necessarily to speak for, for Kyrie in that instance. And so he's avoided saying anything that could be, used on a you know an aggregative quote card and that's been huge i think people have made fun of his offensive playbook at times 
but I think that he's done the right thing. And this, he has a great crop of assistants under him, but he has a, they've, they've defended a bunch of different ways. They've tried a bunch of different lineups, the Bruce Brown stuff. They've been innovated with him. I wish they would when he's healthy, they'd uncork Nicholas Claxton more. That'll be sort of a, a gauge in the playoffs because I think they need to lean on him more heavily than they have thus far. But for someone who came out of nowhere and, you know, he definitely jumped the line and that's a, that is a valid conversation to have. He's not in Brooklyn without Kyrie and, Kevin Durant wanting him. And I think he's outperformed expectations relative to that pretty substantially. Yeah. If you really remember the uproar that came about when he was first named the coach of the Nets, it was pretty intense. You know, there was people in prominent spots of the big networks, you know, ESPN, FS1, whatever it may be, big time shows and Twitter accounts saying how wrong it was that he was given that shot. And what the hell has, like, has he proven as a coach to get this spot? And it's like, you know, he was a two-time MVP. Those guys tend to get some special treatment. Yes. So there was obviously there was people on both sides of those arguments, but handling it with grace and putting this team in a position to succeed has been something we can say about Steve Nash to this point. So uh, good stuff there. And I think it's a good time to move on to our next segment here, but real quick subway sports talk. We got co-host of the hardwood Knox podcast. You can find it everywhere. Apple podcast, Spotify. I believe you guys are on stitcher as well, right? I feel like you guys say that in your thing. Yeah, we are we are anywhere and everywhere. So I don't know. I'm not on Stitcher. Do I gotta get on Stitcher? Is that something I should do? I don't I don't use Stitcher, but I'm even learning <laughs> Can't I'm say learning I do about, either. I'm learning about RSS feeds that exist for Androids. Like people have DM'd us, Oh, something was up with this episode, it won't work on I don't even like podcast hero or whatever mm. it is. I'm like, that's a thing. Yeah. So, Dude, there's a sneaky a bunch. There's like Pocket Cast, Overcast, there's a whole bunch of stuff that do podcasts, but Apple, Spotify, Stitcher, if you use Stitcher, uh, then you're not listening to this podcast if you listen to Stitcher, because I don't think I'm on there. <laughs> Anyways, Hardwood Knox is a fantastic show. Um, obviously, Dan and Adam are here with us. If you want to follow Dan on Twitter, at Dan Favale, D-A-N, F-A-V-A-L-E, and Adam Fromel, F-R-O-M-A-L-09, on Twitter as well. And then check out NBA Math at NBA underscore math. That's a great place to follow. Just for some of those statistics where, hey, you watch the Spurs game, and I don't even know if this guy's up right now. He missed some games, whatever. I'll use him as, as an example. And DeMar DeRozan is playing, and you're like, yo, wasn't he like a bad analytics guy? I don't know. Maybe he isn't now. And he played really well, and then you check him out on NBA Math, has him up. Is he up? I don't know. Bad example? Good example? I feel no, like the- good example. He's definitely up. This there- is uh, this has been a really encouraging year for him. I think we've, we've seen more playmaking than ever. There's the right sound. Um... Yeah, because I knew for a while analytics were like, DeMar DeRozan sucks, like, get him out of here. Then all of a sudden he's assisting on so many three-pointers, still efficient, doing a lot of stuff as a, a playmaker. Anyways, I digress. Adam and Dan have been great so far. We got more to go. It's a good time, before we get to the playoffs, basically, to look back on this season and think about some of the stuff we expected that may have happened or may have went completely wrong and vice versa. So what I wanted to do now is I had Dan and Adam... Think about two of their takes, maybe more, maybe less, from the beginning of the season where they thought a team or a player was going to be good and it went bad, or they thought a player or team was going to be bad and it went good. Maybe they nailed it. Maybe they were on the wrong side of the fence. Not exactly sure. I have a couple too. So does anyone, do I have a volunteer to take one of their takes they're proud of or regretful of first? Does anyone want to go first? If not, I could kick it off. I don't want to put you guys on the spot too hard. I already did this enough with the segment. Pete, I'm more than welcome to lead this one off if you want. There we go. Back-to-back dings for you, Adam. What do you got? 
All right. I'm going to go with one of my bad takes, and it's one I've apologized for a couple times, but it was so bad that I have to keep bringing it up. And I'll, I'll directly quote myself here. I said, Anthony Edwards is going to be a massive bust and we'll look back and wonder why he was ever in the lottery conversation. Um, I, wow. I did not like his feel for the game at Georgia, which is where I went to school. So I watched way too much of that bad team and just didn't feel like he was ever in the right spots. He didn't seem to have the defensive awareness to take the right shots. Uh, I, I just I questioned whether the IQ could match up with the obvious athletic ability. And the improvement that he's shown throughout this season, like, man, have I had to eat those words. It's uh, I don't know if he's going to win rookie of the year, uh, especially now that LaMelo Ball is back in action and creating even more highlights. But he very much looks the part of a future franchise centerpiece. Um, I, I could not have been more wrong on that one. Do you think that your opinion was hurt because you watched too much Anthony Edwards? Like, is that possible? It could have been. I think I was also just scared off of that player archetype by Andrew Wiggins, who mm. I was really high on coming off of his brief Kansas career and just seeing another player where I, I, the, the athletic traits would have to be able to overcome the positioning lack of awareness. Um, I, I think I just veered way too far in the wrong direction. But, you know, if you got to be able to own up for the draft takes if you're going to make them. The draft takes are are tough, man. I swear my worst take of all time, and I'll bring it up to make you feel better because it, it will make you feel better. Uh, I said during the Jason Tatum draft that I thought Luke Kennard could be as good as Jason Tatum. <laughs> you know, there's still a chance. <laughs> yeah, well, Don't that's what I'm saying. Yet. That's what I'm saying. I'm kind of embarrassed to say that out loud, but I was watching Tatum's uh, game highlights. I'm like, listen. He doesn't have the explosion to the rim that I wish he did. I don't know all this stuff. And I was like, Luke Kennard can do everything he can do. I'm like, oh man, that one did not age well. And rather quickly, it didn't age well. Even though Kennard, hey, he's not a bad player, but I digress. Dan, what do you got? Something good or something bad? I'll start bad with the draft too. I did not think LaMelo Ball was going to be good. I recognize that there was sort of a high variance ceiling there with him. But he's been, he's had control over everything since virtually day one. Uh, and it's not just, look, we look at the, the full court passes and he is a sight to behold in transition, but he can really uh, balance the half court offense for Charlotte. And we saw them really miss him. Of course, it was in tandem with Gordon Hayward going down. They had Malik Monk missing time, but he can make great reads in the half court. Needs to improve as a finisher when, you know, wanting to be willing to take more shots, I think, once he gets into the lane. But he can throw his own last minute passes. Um, he can put at least pressure on defenses to get them scrambling. And his jump shot is just, you know, Adams talked about maybe he'll still revamp the form moving forward, but he's shooting basically league average from three on pull-up threes and probably above average relative to pull-up threes. Then he's hitting a, a good percentage of his catch and shoot threes as well. And so he's someone who can fit alongside other guys who need to put the ball in their hands. And I think he's, you know, him and you know Tyrese Halliburton stands out. Patrick Williams stands out. There's been rookies in this class, Isaiah Stewart, that are so much better defensively than rookies have any business being. So that's a that's a whiff on him. I wasn't as strongly against him as Adam was for Anthony Edwards, but I did not think he was going to be basically a fringe All Star, giving you net positive value basically at both ends of the floor. That was not something that ever crossed my mind. Yeah, I think even the people who were high on Lamelo probably couldn't have guaranteed anything like that. But it's fair because. You watched his highlights, and Ryan Russillo, if you listen to the Russillo podcast on uh, The Ringer or him on Bill Simmons, he was like, I don't feel bad for getting that one wrong because you look at the film that we had available for LaMelo Ball, this uh, Australia stuff was ugly, 
you know, he wasn't trying. He was taking a million shots. It wasn't proving that he can play competent basketball, let alone NBA-level competent basketball. And then you see the Lithuania stuff. You see high school stuff. None of that would tell you that he would understand scheme and he would understand, like, the passing maybe you can probably say he showed, like, next-level passing IQ always, but defensively and all that stuff. So, hey, I... I don't, I don't, wouldn't feel too bad about that one. That's tough, but a lot of people did say he was going to be good too. I kind of forget where I landed on that. I think I fair weathered it all the way through the Lamella ball stuff. Just played both sides of the fence because it was that tough. That's the way to go about the draft though, is to do a better job of recognizing just how much of a crapshoot it actually is. And I've done a better job over the years, but I still fall into like the strong takes. I, mm. I was one of the ones that thought Kawhi Leonard was a terrible draft pick mm. and that he was going to be a bust. I think I called him. Hey, the and, fact that you had a take on Kawhi Leonard, cause he's like the take most takeless guy ever. You can easily not have a take on him. So you had something to say, count it. I basically said he would never be able to shoot at the <laughs> NBA level. Turned into one of the most Adam was shaking his head. I'm shaking my head because I am on video calling him the most likely bust from that draft class. Oh, both of so you. I'm right there with you, Dan. Oh my God. We'll go. Ooh. For both of you there, quick oof for the both of you guys. Um, I'm a hey, Luke Kennard. That's all. All I have to say. Um, on, on the Tyrese Halliburton front, real quick before I get to my negative, I absolutely adored him. I wanted him to be a Knicks so so bad. When they didn't take him, I was disappointed, and I was like, all right, I'll talk myself into Obi, which has been mostly negative, a mixed bag lately with more positives. I'd say more activity. Uh, and then IQ made me feel a lot better about not getting Halliburton. But no, it stinks. Halliburton was the guy that so many teams are going to regret or already regret uh, not taking. So that's tough. That guy's special to watch. His IQ for a rookie is is next level. Um, But for my negative, because I'll play this game as well, going back to the over-under podcast that we had before the season, there was one team that I I missed pretty poorly. And I think a lot of people might have missed just not as bad, maybe a little bit in between here. But for the Phoenix Suns, I went under 38 and a half. Now, if you're not familiar, they've zoomed past that total already. They're currently tied with for first. Are they still tied at the moment? I don't know if they play tonight. We're probably recording during some action yeah, here. They're tied with the they're in first because I think they have the tiebreaker over the Jazz, but they have the same record as Utah as of this recording. Right. And the tiebreaker over the Jazz is a different conversation because they match up well, very well against them perhaps. But 38 and a half, they're already at 47, so they can easily pass this by 10 games. I'm the only one on my podcast, on Subway Sports Talk with the NBA Outsiders who I do my show with, who picked the under here. So it even feels worse about it. And my whole take was, yeah, of course they're going to be a little bit better with Chris Paul, but I'm not believing the hype from an eight-game bubble win streak. Like, that means nothing. If they win more than 38 and a half games, that means they would uh, jump a winning percentage of this to that, which is going to be a huge jump. They'll never make it. They're going to be better. They're going to be near the playoffs, but I don't see anything too special. And boy, was I wrong because this team has been incredibly special. Chris Paul proved again that he lifts his team to a point nobody expects possible. He did it last year with OKC. He did it again this year, and he's done it in the past. So I whiffed. I did not think the Mikael Bridges-Cam Johnson wing combo would be as strong as it is. Jake Crowder being a big pickup for them as well. So... I just whiffed there. I didn't think they would have this much upside. And now we're literally talking about them as a possible finals contender. And obviously we can debate that. But I I just completely airballed the Chris Paul effect and the Devin Booker growth and the rest of that team being solid. 
Yeah, that was one of the things that I can do a victory lap on is when we did our Phoenix Suns preview, I had uh, the co-host of the Timeline podcast, the Phoenix Suns podcast on, and I was higher on the Suns than they were when we were going through the, the win totals. I had them at over a 57 win pace and they're winning at a 60 win pace right now. So I even just wasn't as prepared to be that high on them apparently. And they are, you know, they're a team where I still think you look at, if you can tell me that LeBron's going to be on the court for the Lakers, that they're the team, even if they have a tougher road, you probably need to pick to come out of the West, but there's a chance. I don't know what we're going to do when we get into our playoff predictions for hardwood knock, but the more I look at it and study, I might pick the Suns to come out of the West. I know a lot of people just doubt what they're able to do. The lack of postseason experience outside CP three and Jay Crowder, they can defend a bunch of different ways. There are question marks up front because of Deandre Ayton roller coastering a bunch of this season, but they have a lot of good perimeter defenders with Crowder, Mikhail Bridges. Cam Johnson has played well defensively for them. Torrey Craig's been a monster for them basically since he came over from Milwaukee. They can play smaller too with Charts at the five. I think people are still underrating them somehow, which is mind blowing to me because they have they're tied for the best record in basketball right now, and that that doesn't happen by accident. I was right in the middle of you two. I had them uh, going 40 and 32 in my preseason win loss predictions, um, which, you know, obviously was underselling them. um, But I I still did think that they were going to be part of like that second tier in the West. But my big misfire with them was that I had DeAndre Ayton as my most improved player winner. And that, uh, that hasn't happened. That, that doesn't look good now. Mm, That's tough. I mean, most improved is probably one of the harder things to predict. So it's a tough shot anyway, but yeah, that's been probably been the biggest disappointment. I think you could probably look at the rest of their team as all overwhelming positives and things that went better than expected, or at least equally as good as expected, except for Aiton. Do you think that could possibly be a detriment to them? Uh, come playoff time. Or do you think the fact that centers at this point in time get played off the court so much in the playoffs that it might not even matter? Like, how do you think that plays out? A lot of Sarich? I almost wonder if it's a good thing, if it forces them to go small and not feel like they have to play Aiden because he's so good that they can't deviate to that more, that more exciting small ball style that we see in today's NBA. Um, So maybe it ends up being a positive, but ultimately like he's still a good player. He's just not become a star. I don't think he's like a liability by any stretch. I think he's actually more likely to get played off the floor offensively than defensively, which is a, actually good for them because he's done better and especially with the chemistry of Chris Paul where he's been a little bit more aggressive on his roles still just doesn't get to the rim a ton he's cut down on his jumpers a little bit and so continuing to do those things remaining aggressive when he is going to roll helps them a bunch but there have been nights mostly towards the first half or first three quarters of this season where it doesn't feel like he exists as much as it should on the offensive end or he's settling a lot when he really shouldn't but as someone who creates second chance points, has the ability to roll the basket, even if he's not getting to the line with it, that adds value. And if he's doing that, I think it's harder to play him off the floor defensively. He's, he's waxed and Wayne there for sure this season, but he's shown that he can really switch. And he's become more important. I think his defensive has, has shown that Dario Saric is really predicated on being in the right spot and using space to his advantage. Defenses have gotten better at attacking him early in those lineups where he's at the five. So I think Aiton becomes even more important to you defensively. If they're matching up against Anthony Davis, against Rudy Gobert, it's going to be tough for him, but that also just increases his importance to the team because he's the guy. Yeah, against Anthony Davis, yeah, you could use Jay Crowder if you want, even Torrey Craig if they want to downsize. As Adam was talking about, if you want to downsize, 
they've had some intermittent lineups where it's like Jay Crowder and Tory Craig are kind of your, your interchangeable four or five. You can definitely go to that. But I think it's almost encouraging that at this point, it seems like Aiton is more likely to get played off the floor offensively than defensively. He's also just been infuriating to watch lately. Like th- this is a guy who looks like he should play like David Robinson. And then you just see all the soft lay-ins and the refusals to absorb contact and go up for a dunk. It's just, it's baffling and frustrating. It's kind of, Oh, go ahead. I'm oh, sorry. I was just going to say, I, he's the one even more so than Devin Booker, who I thought was going to be impacted. But if you look at the numbers, Devin Booker does play off the ball more and doesn't necessarily get as many touches, but he is using like the share of his shots that go in unassisted are very similar to the last season. The touches are even fairly similar. Uh, he's not even, you know, the percentage of his plays being finished on cuts because it does feel like he's playing off the ball more. That's sort of in lockstep with last year. It just feels like he's displaced from the action a little bit more. Aiton is the one that has been impacted more by utility and usage. And maybe that's just taking him more time to figure out. He wasn't some trailblazer before this. So there was a lot to be desired in offense. But now you're throwing another wrinkle in year three in where he was had more freedom, more license within the offense last year than he has now. I do think this is the better role for him because of a lot of the things that Adam said. I don't know that he has the ability to, to finish through contact or to have that consistent aggression level to be a featured weapon. But all of a sudden, you've gone to probably number two within the offense, even though they had you know Ricky Rubio and Kelly Oubre Jr. last year. Uh, so no less than number three to now they're just nice, but it feels like he could be fourth or fifth, technically, depending on how they're playing. Could be lower. I think, right? You could argue there's games where he's even lower than that. He's just irrelevant. Like, there, there's games where Sarge could be ahead of him in offensive importance, which is kind of weird. Um, but, yeah, it, it is really interesting. With them, I do have one more thought before we move to our takes that we're proud of. Because we got to remember to be proud. You know, self-affirmations are very important you know, <laughs> for the mental health as well. But Chris Paul, obviously fantastic, right? Like, we all know his impact. I just proved how maybe I didn't know before the season enough of how good he can be, and now I'm accepting it. That being said, he is a guy who hasn't had as much playoff success as maybe he should have. Obviously, the Houston, which is most recent, uh, the injury really hurt him the most. In OKC, you could argue they could have won that series last year, and then obviously we all know the history of the Clippers in the playoffs. Is there a reason why you guys think he may not get as much crap as a James Harden or a more recently a Giannis gets because I don't feel like he gets enough shit really talked about him for not winning the big games for not winning the big series. Cause for all the clutch moments we think he's had and for all the great numbers in the clutch that he's had, he's been a second round and out guy a lot. And his only time in the conference finals was with James Harden in Houston, if I'm not mistaken. So where do you land on that? Do you think maybe he shouldn't get any crap? Do you think he should get more crap? What is the Chris Paul playoff take for you, Adam Frommel? I don't think he should get any. Um, I, I look at the numbers that he's put up and the way that he's played and and some of the big shots that he's hit, like the, the game winner and an old series versus the Spurs when he was with the Clippers really stands out to me. Um, all of the advanced numbers that he's he's put up in the playoffs tend to be better than the ones he's put up in the regular season. I think that he's been a part of a lot of very flawed teams that were great in the regular season, but weren't really built to succeed in the playoffs. And he's also had some bad injury luck, both to him and his teammates. I think if you just isolate what he's done as an individual, it's still really hard to criticize his level of play in the playoffs, even if it hasn't translated to a title or even an NBA finals appearance. 
That said, I think the reason he doesn't get as much uh, grief for the, the lack of playoff success as a guy like James Harden is because there's a greater disparity in regular season accolades and lack of postseason success for someone like Harden who's winning MVP, who's winning scoring titles. We, we recognize Chris Paul as a great player, as an all-NBA contributor, as one of the best point guards in the league, but he hasn't really been in that MVP conversation consistently enough for it to be viewed as much of a failure, I think. Pretty fair. I don't know, Danny, you have anything to add to that? I feel like that was a pretty well-rounded answer there. I don't know if we got much. You good on the Chris Paul? This is probably more of an echo than something to add but Harden has had more performances where it's felt like he's been lacking or mm. burnt out where Chris Paul's has been it's been absences because he maybe wasn't available to injury he's had so many great statistically playoff performances uh so I I think Harden is probably more responsible for a lot of the the struggles that the Rockets have and Chris Paul has been for the ones that his teams have have suffered and he wasn't on the most talented teams when he was in uh New Orleans and then the Clippers were just a mess but again I don't think you know that was looking at they were definitely a failure but Adam already pointed out like the shot he hit against the Spurs like James Harden is still we're looking for that James Harden moment in the playoffs that he's yet to have and it does feel like he has more of these clunkers Mm -hmm. relative to our typical Harden expectations than Chris Paul has had when he's actually played I like that I had a wild wild take at the beginning of the year, after like right after the Harden trade, it just came to me when I was recording a pod. I think I was by myself too. It was a solo pod, which made it even weirder to say out loud. But I was like, Andy Reid, I don't know how big a football fan you guys are. I was like, Andy Reid, for a long time, was James Harden. Just like this incredible play up, regular season guy, MVPs. Not that Andy Reid's a player, but you know, the concept. Uh, and then, you know, some playoff success, getting to the conference finals, getting to conference championships. He got to a Super Bowl uh, or two and then lost. And then Harden made it to a finals, made it to some conference finals, et cetera. And I said that Kevin Durant can be the Patrick Mahomes to James Harden or Andy Reid, right? Basically, like James Harden is to Andy Reid. Uh, well, I might be messing up this analogy, but I think you guys know what I'm trying to say. Uh, basically, Kevin Durant can save the legacy of James Harden if he puts together one of these playoff runs that's so incredible, and then Harden's stats are solid so, and maybe has a moment or two where he really facilitates in the finals or has these big assist games, his legacy can get completely saved in in some ways. Obviously, we'll never forget the the horrible offer from the whole Houston Rockets team uh, against the Warriors way back when. But let's move on to our takes that we're proud of. Uh, Dan, why don't you go first for this one? Uh, well, I already sort of harped on the Suns. If I had to pick another one, I don't really know that I was super right about anything. It's sort of depressing. I did have, so I had Dallas going to be seventh in the West leading mm. into the season. And I, people thought that was batshit crazy because they viewed them as being like a real contender. I know they're in fifth right now, but I do think we've seen the limitations to how good they could be where it's like, if Tim Hardaway jr. Or Jalen Brunson is your second best player on the most consistent basis, uh, you're still sort of Chris Osprezikis has had his moments this season, but there's still just sort of something missing from him. And one of that is, can you count on him to be available? There's they're up against a, a, a lower ceiling than I think people realized. And I, I was probably a little bit ahead of that than most people. I'd counter that with, I thought the Blazers were going to be good on defense this year, oh. at least better than last season. Lo and behold, they're, they're 29th. They're okay with Yusuf Nurkic on the floor, but they, they are a disaster otherwise. And so to throw a good take with a, with a really bad one, but I didn't view Dallas. They felt like they were one, maybe 1.5 players away 
even after the – I liked the Seth Curry for Josh Richardson trade, and that probably didn't really pan out for them when you look at how Richardson has played on, on offense this season. I was just surprised that so many people thought they were going to be this real viable contender. And I know they had their struggles at the beginning of the season uh, with app injuries and then and COVID. Still, without the Lakers sort of dealing with the injuries at the top to Davis and, and uh, LeBron, they're, they're in sixth. And they're not, you know, are they that much better than the Blazers? I wouldn't, I wouldn't look at them and say, no, uh, I don't think they're that much better than Portland. Yeah. They're way closer to seven than, than four way closer. So yeah, that's a good call by you. I think it's uh, a lot to do with the MVP narrative before the season. Luca was probably, I don't know if he was technically the MVP favorite, but he was one of the Vegas MVP favorites. And when you have that, you think of a team that's top four. Uh, So I think that's a pretty good, strong take by you right there, Dan. Good stuff. Adam, what do you got? I'm going to victory lap on Dan a little bit here. Let's go. Uh, with the Memphis Grizzlies. <laughs> uh, the over-under for them going into the season was set at 30.5. Um, I had them going 36 and 36. And as of recording this, they are on pace to go exactly 36 and 36. But the reason that that take stands out to me is because I, I remember Dan pushing back vehemently on that one to the point that he decided that we should make a bet about it. And then we just never came up with any stakes. So I'll, I'll consider like exposing that here as like the debt paid, but I do have (laughs) to just like hammer home how wrong he was and how exactly right I've been on that one. Well, okay. Let me provide the pushback. of how, (laughs) How not so strong Adam's take was he didn't want to make the bet when they had the injuries with Justice Winslow, Jaron Jackson Jr., John Morant went down with his ankle at one point. And so Adam said, no, we're not going to come up with one now. It's not fair. So Adam was not that far out in front of the Grizzlies to the point where he was actually willing to make a bet. He's the yeah, That guy. sounds like revisionist history to me. <laughs> well, that's the thing about Memphis, though, is it doesn't matter, right? Like, they play so damn hard, and Dylan Brooks is so damn crazy that like they're going to they're going to get their fair share of wins. They're going to punch people in the mouth and some people aren't going to want to take that for 72 games not or 82 games next year. You know, I yeah, actually gotta, oh, I, sorry. No, I was just going to say I actually locked in the over myself on our over under pod. I put in a lock next to the, I wrote the Memphis Jaws, which is kind of rude of me because they clearly <laughs> did some stuff without him. I thought he was just going to carry them all by himself, but this whole roster just plays so damn well. Kyle Anderson, that guy does incredible work night in night out and no one cares to talk about him very much. Yeah, I was going to say that we Dan and I recently did an, an episode on Hardwood Knox where we looked at the most underrated player on each team in the Western Conference. And you know, on that one, I said that you, know, you can basically close your eyes and point at the Memphis roster, and you're probably going to find someone. I think my, my personal take for them would be Jonas Valanciunas, who I, I think remains one of the most underrated players in the NBA as a whole. But, I mean, Kyle Anderson, Dylan Brooks – uh, any anywhere you go on that roster, you're finding someone who's underrated. Those were, I actually, I don't think I listened to the entire Western Conference one, to be frank, but I did the whole East, and those were both really fun episodes because it really made you think about players, especially, you know, I I think the, th- the four of us, because we all watch a ton of basketball. We all know uh, a bunch of stuff. Well, I just got, sorry, this is really strange. My phone just popped up with a assistant media technician job at Bleacher Report. <laughs> As I'm here talking to some, well, former Bleacher Report guy and a Bleacher Report just popped up and distracted me. But yeah, I, I think you think about all the players in the league sometimes, and then a lot of guys you think about all the time. John Morant, you think about all the time. He's never going to be in the underrated category at this point. But but there's a lot of dudes who are really making impacts every single night that if you don't watch them, 
you're going to be like, eh, who the hell cares? Like, P.J. Dozier is a dude for me in Denver who I just love the way he plays the game, but he's never going to get a spotlight. He's never going to get a bunch of shine. It's just not his place in the pecking order. There's four or five, six guys sometimes who are ahead of him. So those are super fun. Um, wait, did you guys both? You just gave both of your, your, your thing there. Yeah. Okay. We so did, yeah. I'll give mine, and then we'll move on to the last segment because I'm, I'm sure I'm taking a big chunk of your guys' night here. I don't want to hold you all night, but – my one that I'm proud of, and this one is unfortunate because it doesn't call for the best product, really. But I think I nailed the Miami Heat take. Their over-under was 44.5. I was the only person on my podcast who called under on that. And I said, everybody's talking about the Lakers not having a turnaround to get healthy, to get mentally right for this quick season or this short offseason now, new Titan season. No one's talking about that with the Heat. They're only talking about the Lakers. And I said, it's going to happen to them. They're going to get the, the the injury bug or whatever bug you want to talk about, and it's going to be a struggle. They're going to be mentally drained as well. I'm not saying they're not going to have it together by playoff time, but I strongly thought they would be under 44 and a half, and that one is pretty much nailed at this point in time. Like, I don't think, would they if they win out, would they get there? I don't think they would. I don't no. think so either. Was was part of your thinking there just that Spolstra also loves to tinker so much during the regular season that you're sacrificing some wins? Yeah, well, not not exactly that. It was more along the lines of uh, peak versus norm- normalcy, I think. Like, we saw absolute peak Tyler Hero in a rookie year. It was unprecedented. I just thought it was partially unprecedented. And I that's a great point. I didn't even think of that specifically because that team in the bubble was not the team that ended the regular season. It was a completely different starting lineup. They were running out Myers Leonard every single night, and then he didn't even play really in the bubble. So that's a great point by you that I didn't even take into consideration. I just thought that they had the perfect run. Everything went super well for them. And it it reminded me basically of a football take where in recent history, the loser in the Super Bowls have been rough the next year. Happened to uh, the Niners most recently. I don't think it's going to happen to the Chiefs this year. But in, in recent history, that's happened a great bit. The Falcons haven't been the same since they lost the Super Bowl. I thought the Heat went on this epic run, high intensity, high levels of emotion, and I thought they were going to come flat throughout this season. And now Bam has turned it up. Jimmy said, get me to the playoffs. I don't care. And I, I trust them to make it interesting in the playoffs. But during this regular season, I think I was able to, to nail the fact that they wouldn't be up to snuff. Their offense has been bad this mm. year, even when accounting for the fact that Jimmy missed a bunch of time. And I think that's what surprised me. I think both Adam and I were on the train. They're not going to be as good as they were last year, and it'll be tough for them to get back to that ceiling. Even with the best version of Jimmy, though, like their offense is about average when he's on the court. And I, I think, you know, they, the Victor Oladipo acquisition, had he been healthy, that might have given them a nice little swing piece. Dragic have been all over the place. Tyler Hero has been, you know, he's dealt with injuries and both been all over the place. The thing that stands out to me, still a great player, they need probably Bam Adebayo to be more of a scoring aggressor than just this passing guy because he has the ability to take that mindset more often than he does. But I never would have looked at this team and said they're going to finish in the bottom 10 in points scored per possession, and that's what they're on pace to do right now. Yeah, Bam's scratching at the surface. Like, he, you know, he showed it in the that buzzer beater against the Nets game, and that's just one that comes to mind because it was so prevalent on the highlights and whatnot. He can dribble. He can, you know, ISO a little bit. You don't want him doing it too much yet, but he has it in his bag. And with his mental capacity and attitude for the game, you expect those strides to be made in the next couple of years because this dude is a grinder, right? I think Bam is 
should be looked at as one of the best young players in the game, rightfully so. Defensively, he's already there. The offense, he's scratching the surface, and it's it's proven it's going to come. I, I think sooner than later, we'll see a 20-point-per-game Bam Adebayo. I had a take on Twitter earlier this season where I said that I think there's like a realistic possibility. I'm not saying it's going to happen, but there's at least a possibility that a couple of years from now, Bam could be the best player in the NBA. I, I think you have to include him in that conversation. It got a ton of pushback, mm. which I was a little bit surprised by just because it, it does seem like he's still this moldable ball of clay as talented as he already is. Yeah, and right now he's at 19 points per game, so I should have even raised that up to like 22. I think pretty soon he can be a 22 guy. Do you think there's a little bit of, now this is going to sound crazy because of what the MVP conversation is right now, do you think there's a little bit of Jokic in him where we always wanted him to put more into scoring and like, dude, you're way more efficient than you probably give yourself credit for, like attack, get your buckets, get your shots. Like obviously Jokic is probably a better jump, well, is a better jump shooter. He's a better passer, but Bam's a really good passer for a big. Do you think there's a little bit of just untapped aggressiveness as the offensive player of Bam Adebayo? I'm not sure I've seen that quite yet, just because such a high percentage of his buckets, as efficient as they may be, are still coming off of setups from other players. I think even early on in Jokic's career, it was clear that he could create for himself, both from the elbows and out of the post. And I don't know that we've seen enough of that yet from Bam. He could, uh, but I'm not confident enough in him becoming that. I mean, like Jokic is now pushing closer to 30 points a game. I don't think we're going to see that from Bam. Yeah, I should have been more with like the two years ago Jokic. You know, maybe maybe Mm -hmm. the the current Jokic is way too untouchable at this point in time, for sure. Good call Uh, by you, though. Bam Sneaky is a great passer. So you can run stuff through him, but you're right. From the... Pure scoring capabilities, it's not quite there yet. Uh, We'll see where he can get to, though. But all right, this is Subway Sports Talk. I have one more segment for you guys. It's going to be very quick. I just want to talk about the two of you because, I, like I said, the dynamic on Hardwood Knox is great. You guys talk about a number of great topics every single week. I actually, you know, not to say envy, but I look to see how you guys sometimes break out your episode and are able to talk in depth about a number of topics. So, I truly love it. I'm not just saying it because you're on the podcast. I will, I'll say this right now. I listen to a bunch of NBA podcasts. I think all of them are top notch and I'm going to put you guys in. You can check my listening history. It is the low post. It is the mismatch. It is Bill Simmons. It's Russillo. It's hardwood knocks. And then you throw in like a few other, you know, I mix in some athletic stuff maybe once in a while, but I throw you guys in my rotation with that. So tip my cap to you. Keep up the great work. And it's an honor to have you guys on the episode right now. Um, but lastly, I want to talk about you guys in particular to your personalities and the debates that take place here. So the first question I have is who gets more shit on Twitter? Who out of the two of you gets more hate from the fans on Twitter? You throw out a take on the, on the podcast or you throw out a tweet just to see what's happening. Maybe it could even be a statistical fact but somebody's ready to to take your head off. So who gets more crap on Twitter? Oh, it's got to be Dan, just because he's still he's still writing. Like that that's the thing is like I, I think he's way more active on Twitter and way better at Twitter than me. Like the, his personality shines through so clearly on Twitter in a way that mine doesn't, just because I tend to stick to more of like the numbers based stuff, and I'm just not there as much. So he gets a ton of grief on it. And, and it's definitely not all deserved, but it's it's 
in large part just due to the sheer presence. You also do trade grades. And whenever you do grades, you're getting some bad tweets in your mentions, I imagine. Yeah, trade grades, hypothetical trades, those are the those are the absolute worst. And it's interesting. The trade grades tend to be positively received by hmm. um, NBA media members that would otherwise ignore that I exist, but they are just terribly received by the fans. <laughs> and if you go into Bleacher Report's app, just the, you know, they, they encourage us to respond to comments, but there are certain articles that you have to sort of take a step back because it can be bad for your mental health dealing with all that crap. And I would say that's really the only reason why I, I don't think my takes are any necessarily stronger than Adam's. I just have more of a presence on Twitter and, um, you know, NBA, he's, he's expending a lot of his energy on NBA math type tweets where people, I feel like they don't get as mad at brands, especially when he's presenting all these things together. But I'm also running the Hardwood Knox account where I will, I'll post Frankie Lakina propaganda there mm-hmm. too. We had a tweet it's amazing. where I put that Frankie Lakina was averaging more points per spot up possession than Kyrie. And people just got so upset about it, <laughs> even though it was a joke. So yeah, it's definitely was it though? I don't, was it a joke? Was it, it fact? Wasn't a joke. It was, was it fact? It was a fact. It was fact. That was, that was portrayed as a joke. But <laughs> I think just by virtue of, yeah, the, the accounts, the type of accounts that I'm running and the fact that I'm still writing. So people, a lot of the shit I catch isn't even because of what I've posted on Twitter. I think I've got, I've myself even gotten away from Twitter a little bit because it's not a place anymore where people take jokes really seriously. And it's also not a place for nuanced discussion. So I just, I'm not expending as much energy there, but people will come and find you whether it's Twitter or Instagram or the BR comments based off something you wrote. And Adam doesn't have that layer of grief mm. anymore. I think you could, could you fancy yourself a meme Smith at this point too, Dan? I get paid to make memes for the blue wire. Account, there you so go. I, I could. Um, and I, I think I have, a, I have a holiday sweater that says captain meme on it that they gave me or something. So I'm going to go ahead and call myself a meme Swift meme Smith. Then there you go. I love it. I think we're, we're all trying to be take Smiths thus far. So as you are, Smithing a take, I don't think that makes sense. But again, you know what I'm trying to say here. <laughs> who needs to be reined in more? Like who, when you guys are having a podcast, somebody comes in hot with a take and says, this is why the Charlotte Hornets are going to be a six seed this year, but, but, but whatever, I just made something up. And then the co-host has to be like, all right, let's take a step back. That was a little bit crazy. Like who, who needs to get reeled in more? I think... Adam's takes need to be reeled in more. And that might speak to him being having more gall or more courage. I would say my reactions to those takes need to be reeled in more. <laughs> I mean, he can he can take those if I say something ridiculous, he'll let me finish. And then he'll come back with like a you know, an even keeled rebuke. I will interrupt him in the middle of it. Be like, <laughs> that's the stupidest fucking thing you've ever said. And I think I said that, which is one of the things that we we both ended up catching crap for, but it was the Donovan Mitchell versus Devin Booker debate on the podcast. Mm. And I, I said that that is your worst take ever. And I, I was being dramatic on purpose, but we both ended up him for the way he, he picked Donovan Mitchell and then me for the way I interrupted him and said it was the most ridiculous thing I've ever heard. So I think there's a nice balance there. I think he's more willing to give out takes that I would deem ridiculous. But when we're reacting to one another's hotter takes, uh, even though per one of our most recent reviews, we don't give enough hot takes. Dude, I saw that. One of the things that was um, going to be one of my next questions, by the way. Continue. Sorry, continue. Yeah, so I'm more dramatic with my reactions, and I think Adam is more courageous with the opinions he's willing to provide. Well, Pete, that's actually where I was going to go with my answer, is that I don't really know that I have an answer to this particular question, just because I think that we both err too far on the side of caution with the takes. 
where we've just wanted them to be measured and reasonable for so long that I think we're both a little hesitant to really go out on a not so sturdy limb sometimes, see that piece of feedback that we received in one of the reviews. It's an incredibly and, tough balance. Sorry to, to jump. I was just going to say, when you think about like the standard media watcher, somebody who may tune into first take and may tune into the jump for, for our example of talking about the NBA, one of the big complaints you probably see is like, oh, it's all hot takes. It's all this. It's all that. And I think you guys care enough about the NBA and your jobs and your professionalism to not just get on a microphone and start saying crazy stuff, right? So I think that's like really commendable in that regard, but it's also sometimes it's fun to get a little, you know, get a little heat check on for yourself on the take. So I, I totally get it. It's a tough, tough balance. Uh, but Dan, you're about to say something before I get to my next one. Yeah. And one of us should have said one, thank you for the kind words before. Because oh, there are so many of course. national podcasts and the, and this is related to that. There's been a shift in how podcasts are consumed. I think you've probably understood this by talking nationally about the NBA. People are more inclined to gravitate towards the team centric podcast because they mostly have, uh, you know, their allegiances to a certain franchise. And that's where I don't want to take this as a complaint, but I do think it's gotten difficult if you want to have a more effective national podcast, uh, because there are so many fans that have this in-depth knowledge on the team where let's use the, even the Suns as an example. Like if you want to go talk about like the, the specific minute they're running this Devin Booker horns play on average every single game, that's not what you're coming to Hardwood Knox for. And so it's been a, it's a struggle to come up with content that appeals to people to then make sure that you're well-informed. And I think that's where, at least for me, the hesitance to probably share some opinions that we actually have is born from, because we don't want to incite these fan bases that, you know, because they're listening to these other um, niche podcasts or just podcasts that are covering the team more on a daily basis, they're going to dunk on you. They're going to come at you harder and you don't want to have to inflame too many fan bases and you want to make sure that you're doing the due diligence. And that is tougher when you're covering 30 teams twice a week relative to covering their difficulties in hosting a team centric podcast. I want to make that clear. Look at the break the NBA had, they had nine months off or whatever. How are you coming up with content for one team? If you were hosting a podcast, we had, we all had a struggle covering 30, but that's where a lot of the, there's a mental push and pull, I think for both Adam and I, when you're looking at it from that aspect and the shift in how people are, you know, they're, they're, they're really adjudicating better the, the content that they're receiving and it's more geared. It's more regional. I think that if you're a fan of a team, you're going to gravitate towards that perspective. And that has become a problem that nationally, I don't know that podcasts, including ourselves have effectively tackled yet. That that was a wonderful answer. And uh, it, it really, it goes to show like you take you, you were Adam basically have a take about, or we'll use the jazz here. Cause we were talking about them before we started the recording there's 25, there are maybe thousands of jazz fans ready to get nine stats against your one because they've looked it all up. They care about that team pretty much only in some regards. They only care about putting down other teams. And that leads me to my next question. So we're going to take the jazz out of it because I, all I did was reply to an Adam Frommel tweet and I got seven <laughs> jazz fans in my, in my back pocket. So is there another fan base that can be really frustrating or, you know, most aggressive, perhaps. Uh, so let's take the jazz out. I feel like when you listen to national podcasts, Zach Lowe goes at it all the time. Because in theory, let's be honest, Zach Lowe should be an ally to the jazz. He's somebody who highlights the jazz. My guy has Joe Ingles on the pod every chance he gets. He loves the jazz. He had, I didn't, or maybe that was Woj had on Jordan Clark, Clarkson. I forget. Doesn't matter. No, I think it was Zach Lowe. Doesn't matter. 
Zach Lowe should be a jazz ally. Yet he always says how the jazz fans are so tough. So give me another fan base that you guys find to be rather tough uh, when you guys put your tweets and takes out there. Is it too much of a cop-out answer to go with the Lakers here? No, honestly, no, because I don't know what Laker fans are. Are they real? Like, they're real, but, like, they're, are they Kobe <laughs> they, they fans? Are they are, LeBron? especially when the team's winning. Are they yeah, Braun fans? Like, you know, it's weird. Right. I think now that the, the concept of Lakers exceptionalism is back in full swing, following a title, following landing LeBron James in free agency, it's back. And if you say anything remotely negative about the Lakers, if you aren't just inordinately positive about every one of the players, you're going to catch some grief for it. And it's, it's always been that way, especially when they're good. But, you know, even during the, the downswings, like if you write, if you wrote something five years ago about how Kobe Bryant might not be a top 10 player all time, or might not be the second greatest shooting guard of all time, like with a platform like Bleacher Report, get ready for the death threats. That's, that's not hyperbolic. Like those come. That's crazy. That's crazy. Yeah, I the, the Lakers are up there, and I think it was a Lakers fan that this was a few years ago. Wished that I would get cancer. Oh my like, god! I don't remember what the thing was oh from, but, uh, Jesus. I would say what's also interesting is that there are. I don't think it's necessarily a bad thing, but as some of these teams get better than they've been, their fan bases are way more engaged. So if you say something that's maybe against a little bit the consensus, and this season specifically, I've been pretty high on the Suns, so I've accumulated a ton of Suns followers. But they're a fan base where you know. If I say something that's remotely, I don't know if it's controversial or just counter to what they're thinking, like they're going to come at me aggressively. It's happened with Denver, um, some Denver writers this year, because I didn't have Jokic number one on my MVP ballot oh, until post Joel Embiid injury, basically. Uh, so those are two fan bases. Then the, the other ones that are, and I don't think this is a bad thing necessarily, but you'll get pushback in c- comments and then even on Twitter, but Indiana and Portland are two mm. fan bases that I think perpetually feel like no one's watching them, maybe Indiana more so. Probably fair. Uh, when I did, and it was a flawed awards ladder earlier in the season. I didn't communicate what I was doing. I was trying to make it predictive, not a snapshot of it in time. I didn't have Miles Turner in the top three of my defensive player of the year ballot so early into the season because I didn't think he was going to stay there. Mm. And I should not have approached it like that. Pacers Twitter was just all over me. And that's a fan base that, you know, I think they are, the Raptors used to be this way, I feel like. They're a little bit more. I don't want to use the word sensitive because I don't want to criticize them and get more shit for it. But <laughs> I don't think many Raptors. I don't think many yeah, Raptors fans listen to, to this out. podcast. <laughs> yeah, they they want to point out that the national media doesn't know enough about them, and so they're and there's a lot of talent there when you're looking at writers. If it's whether it's Caitlin Cooper or, or Mark Schindler or Tony East, like there's just a lot of media talent there. So the the information's out there, but those are some fan bases that spring to mind where they're going to be you know defend their team pretty pretty strongly if they disagree with something you say or, or if they feel overlooked and they did the, the Raptors won the championship that helps right there's like a it statue doesn't. of <laughs> it, it, it has not. <laughs> I, I feel like I'm Raptors Twitter adjacent at this point because I became emotionally attached to Kyle Lowry like seven mm. or eight years ago so I follow so many people but like they're you know they still feel the element of uh, of being overlooked by the you know and I think it's what's contributed to is quiet leaves. Everyone thinks that they're done, but then they were really good last year. And then even this year, people thought they were done again and they haven't been great, but people aren't pointing out that every game is, is basically a road game for them. And they've dealt with COVID and all these injuries and people just are criticizing them because they didn't trade Kyle Lowry, but Raptors fans will tell you why that's okay. So I don't think it's, I think the championship has given them emboldened them to dunk on media members more or other people who are providing counterpoints, but I don't think it's necessarily 
giving them the sense of validation that they're covered at the same level as a not just the Lakers, but the Clippers or maybe even the Sixers or, or the Bucks. Mm. That's fair. Cause now it's like, Hey, we won a championship. Give us our due that we still deserve. You know, like, Hey, we're not just out here being in Canada anymore. We're out in Tampa. Give us some, give us some credit. If you feel bad for us, maybe they're asking, I don't know. Uh, my last thing I have for you guys though, is I think this is what I'm going to say. I think it's a sign of making it. And I'm sure you guys have higher hopes and dreams for hardwood knocks. But this is one of the most rare things you'll ever see on the review platform for Apple Podcasts. You guys got a review on here, which reviews are great. I recommend everybody reviewing the podcast you listen to because it helps a ton, especially when they're five stars. But y'all had a guy who literally gave out four stars. That has to be like the most rare. Like it's usually five or one, right? Five or none, whatever you can do. Can you do can you do zero stars? Is that possible? So this guy yeah, I think it has to be one. Okay, so it's five or one, right? So this guy, oh, what the hell? I just lost it. Oh, here it is. So this guy said, almost perfect. And like, what is that? He gave you a, an A minus and he gave you four stars? Like, that is rude. I'm assuming that this guy does not listen to this podcast, but that is rude. He enjoys the show. He thinks you guys have good takes, uh, but you play it too safe. Like, Adam, you just alluded to this guy earlier, mm-hmm. did you not? Mm-hmm. I did. I have I have a bone to pick with this guy. He says, other than that, great energy, great content, very well informed. That sounds like five stars to me. What's going on with that? Does that mean like you got the true nuance that you guys are asking for? Or is this guy just off his rocker? What's up with this? Maybe somewhere in between. I, I don't know why that's not a five star. <laughs> that's review. what I'm saying. The ones that I, I have more of an issue with when people just downvote the podcast because something happened that's tangentially related or totally unrelated where we got downvoted by Lakers fans once because of something that was said about Kyle Kuzma. And <laughs> oh, come on. It, like we went from having like a 4.9 or five star rating to it was at 4.3 for a while, which just kind of sucks because if those are the first reviews people are seeing uh, again, not a complaint, other podcasts are having it worse and we are lucky with the amount of listens and downloads we get. But yeah, that that's one of the reviews. And I say it when I try to solicit responses on the podcast Throw us the five-star rating to just help the podcast if you're listening. Yeah. Write whatever the hell you want. You talk about how if you see me on video, my forehead is too big. Um, talk about <laughs> you know, Adam not having spicy enough takes or something. Say whatever you want. Criticize. Just throw us the five-star rating. Just throw us the five-star rating. And that review, though, it's, it's puzzling. I'm not going to say that person's off their rocker, but it's oh, really yeah. puzzling Sorry. because we're not – I, I, as Adam looked at, like, we're not, are we not hot? To, we're not first takey enough, but I feel like that's the people claim that they don't want more of that. So I don't, I don't necessarily understand. Yeah. That was to my earlier point. Like people are very clear about not wanting more first take that first take and the skip and Shannon show and whatever shows that are the big ones, they do enough of that, right? Let's get all the other stuff to be the, these are his words, not mine. Great energy, great content, very well informed. Like, <laughs> that's what we want, right? That's good. <laughs> I remember as soon as that one came through, Dan screenshotted it and sent it my way right away, and we we got a good laugh over it. You know, would have preferred that fifth star, but <laughs> it is what it is. I, I think like w- when it comes to that more measured takes, like ultimately, like you you can count on Dan and myself. We're not going to give a take if we don't actually believe it, and that's the biggest thing. Like, and maybe that prevents us from having enough hot takes or being inflammatory enough. But like ultimately, I've always fallen on the side of the line where I would rather just truly believe what we're saying, regardless of whether it's more tepid or it's hotter. That's, that's what we should all want, right? You know, that that's it. That's why I like your guys' podcast uh, among some of the other things that I noted 
uh, why I like it. So it's been wonderful. I don't want to take up more time than I already have. We're pushing an hour and 30 minutes here. So I apologize for the length of this, but hopefully you guys enjoyed. Again, we had Dan Favale at D-A-N-F-A-V-A-L-E and Adam Fromel, F-R-O-M-A-L-O-9 on the Twitters. Uh, do you guys have, I don't, I looked up for the hardwood knocks on the IG. Is it out there on Instagram or no? I don't know if I missed it. I don't want to miss it. No. Okay. No, so no IG for us. We have YouTube and Twitter. That's there you it. go. The YouTube check out hardwood knocks on YouTube as well then. And then this is it. This is the last word, something that, you know, we usually do at the end of every single episode, just give everybody whatever platform they want. You guys can use it to push something you do for hardwood knocks or bleacher report or sports casting. Uh, but it could also be, a baseball take, a football take, a TV show, whatever whatever you want it to be, it's your last words. So, uh, Dan, I'll put you on the spot to go first. We will be scheduling a riot if the Knicks do not extend Frankie Lakina a qualifying offer for restricted free agency this summer. So stay tuned for, stay tuned for that. If they extend a qualifying offer and keep him, all is well. But if not, there we will be scheduling some sort of, you know, maybe it'll be digitally, maybe it'll actually be out in the world, but I will be rioting in the streets or on your timeline if Frank Nielakin does not get a qualifying offer from the Knicks. He needs to be the first first-rounder extended since, what, 95, 96 or some crazy number like that? It's been a long yeah, time since we re-signed our first-round pick. Yeah, and I, if, you know, if R.J. Barrett's the first, then awesome, but also not. It should be Frank <laughs> I'm I could not be more on board with you there. Adam, what do you got? Last words. I'm going to go in an entirely different direction and plug a book. Um, go to Amazon or wherever else you pre-order books and look up Giannis, The Improbable Rise of an NBA MVP. It's coming out in August by Mirren Fader. I had the pleasure of working as a fact checker on the book, so I can confirm that it is phenomenal and mm. has so many great anecdotes that just haven't appeared anywhere else. So go check that one out. Uh, what is the book called again? It's called Giannis, The Improbable Rise of an NBA MVP. There you go. I've heard about that. A bunch of writers and podcasters alike have been hyping up the the author that she's apparently fantastic. I think Kevin O'Connor of the mismatch has mentioned it a few times and that's another great show. Um, so yeah, great stuff. This has been awesome. This has been subway sports talk for Adam Fromel for Danfa Valley and Mike Bonfield. Mike, I'm sorry. We didn't get you in today. I just, we, we were, I was so excited to talk to Dan and Adam. You'll be back next week on the episode again. Uh, but Pete Kennedy here, Danfa Valley, Adam Fromel, hardwood Knox host. Go check that out. Thank you so much for listening. Cheers.